Hey, vassals! Welcome to Vassals of King's Grace Epic Agatha Christie reread. My name is Bina007. I'm going to be your host today. Uh, unfortunately, the Lord Baron Xander is is down for the count this week. We wish him well and hope to welcome him back soon. But I am joined by my trusty comrade in arms, Hannah. Hey, it's Adam Chad on Discord. And we have rallied. We are here for episode 21 of the reread. 1936's Cards on the Table, yet another book published in 1936. Agatha Christie is 46. She is in her prime. She is earning a bunch of money. She is the master of her craft, maybe cynical about her craft. We'll get into that when we discuss the character <laughs> Ariadne Oliver. <laughs> I don't know. Is this a good book? It's, it's, it feels to me like it's often not considered in the classics with things like Murder on the Orient Express, but it's a personal favorite of mine. I, I give it all the lemon cakes. Hannah, this is the first time you've explored this book. What did you yeah, think? Yeah, I immensely enjoyed it. And um, Yay! There, there were some frustrating parts where she's a little repetitive, but in general, I... I thought it was very self-aware and meta in a delightful way. And especially when you think like modern sensibilities, oh, that's nothing new. But for her and her time, I just thought um, it's very, if you like, it's always sunny in Philadelphia at all for that. Like this is that version of that yeah, where, <laughs> where she's nodding to herself <laughs> and poking fun at herself while weaving together a pretty intricate mystery. I since I was coming in cold, I tried like hell to solve it. Every time any detail was given, I wrote it down and I had a big notebook going. I was doing armchair detecting. I got pretty close to the solution, but I didn't well, get the exact twisty. solution. It is, it is it's twisty, twisty and turning. And I, I love that. I love seeing your notes. Uh, listener Hannah sent me photos of her notebook and it's amazing detection. I'm so in awe because I'm so bad at detection, but yeah, you got- It would have helped if I knew how to play bridge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that would have helped a lot. Yes, the cards on the table of the title listener <laughs> refer to the game of bridge, which I'll get into how popular that was at the time. Nonetheless, I don't play bridge either, or I haven't played it since university. So I, yeah, I think you can enjoy it without it, but it probably- well, Xander, Lord Baron's got his homework cut out for him because I'm gonna tell him like, first learn how to play bridge, then read this one. <laughs> <laughs> and and then if you can solve it. it. It is great, great Hercule Poirot. So he's going to love the bit where Poirot is like, but I'm, I, if what you say is right, I'm wrong. And I'm never wrong. Oh, what is happening? No, as an HP fan, he's going to go gaga over this, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think, I think so. Um, you know, why I love this book. Number one, it's peak Poirot. I love Poirot. I love Ariadne Oliver. But I think most of why people who love this book love this book is that, you know, we're 15 years into her writing career now. And she, like you say, it's so meta. It's so clever because she, she's telling us what she thinks about detective fiction. She's telling us what she thinks about becoming famous and rich and the joys of serialization and earning money from her books. I think there's, there's so much about how she feels about her craft, that that becomes like a glimpse behind the curtain. I've been reading this really good book all the way through this series called Agatha Christie, The Woman and Her Mysteries by Gillian Gill, which is out of print, so you have to get it from a secondhand bookstore. Um, and this is what she says, quote, Agatha was well aware that her books ranked with the great detective works of the past, and she was enjoying her own preeminence. 
she steadfastly refused offers to write any sustained commentary on the detective genre. However, her mature novels are full of remarks about the craft of detective writing. In chapter three of The ABC Murders, she sets up a perfect locked room mystery. As Poirot says, a very simple crime, very intimate. He imagines four people sitting down to play bridge while the fifth sits nearby close to the fire. At some point in the game, the player who is dummy gets up and murders the man in the chair. Intent upon the game, the other three players notice nothing amiss. The resulting novel is one of Christie's favourites, and it is a detective novelist's detective novel. <laughs> in this book, Christie sets out technical rules for a narrative game of such difficulty that only the brilliant writer herself can come out a winner. There is a forward, which is unusual. She doesn't want to be associated with the least likely suspect did at school because she always wants her murderers to have a psychological motive. Um, and I think it's really interesting that she mentions Sherlock Holmes and the curious incident of the dog in the night. Um, but that's why I love this book, because I think it's kind of like Christy is so confident. I mean, she is like badass girl boss at this moment, right? She just knows that she's up there with Sherlock Holmes. She knows her creation of Poirot is popular and she knows her craft and she's just going to play with us and say, look, I'm going to make this so easy for you. There are four detectives, there are four criminals and one victim. The, one of the four criminals is going to have done it. There are no tricks in this book. Um, it's not everyone did it or no one did it. Someone did do it. There's only four to pick from. Off you go and see if you can outwit me. I believe it's this book. And they might have made mention of it in ABC as well. But I'm pretty sure at one point Perot says, uh, you know, very few of the crimes that Jack the Ripper committed were committed by Jack the Ripper. Mm. And um, I also took that as a being aware that her characters, so she herself is up there with other famous detective fiction writers, but her characters are considered in the echelon of real life famous crimes as well. And, you know, that might come off as pompous in another circumstance, but given that she's a female writer in her time, I think it's a very sincere way to show pride at your accomplishments. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's, yeah, it's really beautifully done. Um, because maybe, she doesn't out and say it either. It's just an, it's implicit. And I really, I appreciated that like stroke of the pen there. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, it's, she's a class act. She really is. Um, maybe a, a word on Bridge. So Bridge is not a game. I wonder if our listener has even heard of it. I think, you know, for older people, maybe you will have heard of Bridge, but um, poker now seems to be the sort of the card game of choice. But apparently... I always wanted um, to learn. Yeah. Well, when you come over, I will teach you. Bridge. Well, I think I'm going to try to learn now because I'm so intrigued. And it sounds like a game I'd want to play because there's skill and chance involved. Yeah, exactly. Um, the restriction on bridge there, one like poker, is you do need four people to play. Um, like you can't just have three or five or seven. It's it's quite strict on that. But apparently it would have been immensely, immensely popular at the time. And pretty much all of her readers would have known how to play it. Apparently, in, and not just in Britain, apparently, according to Wikipedia, so health warning, in 1944, 40% of US households played bridge. That kind of blew my mind. So maybe this is what people did after dinner before TV. Um, so, and apparently it's very common, like if you read plays and books of the period that you would host a dinner party, then after dinner you would break up into groups of four people 
and play bridge. And if you think back to things like Jane Austen novels, often after dinner, the party spinning up. But it's very important there in groups of four because basically the four detectives play bridge in one room. The four uh, people who are maybe killers um, play bridge in another room. And Shaitana, the victim, is kind of in between. And that is the kind of the closed room mechanism by which this murder can happen. And the other absolutely crucial thing about bridge is that each player keeps score um, and you can keep score with different scoring methods. But from these bridge scores, Poirot thinks he can intuit um, the psychology of everyone who was there. So he, he, he detects in two methods. He says, you know, there's no big clue. There's no big kind of like, you know, uh, gun hidden under the table, but he's going to ask each player what they remember of the room um, to see kind of how they remember things and what they notice and what's important to them, but also to look at the bridge scores. And Agatha Christie actually prints, so you can see the bridge scores kind of in the handwriting in the book. And we know that when Agatha Christie gives us a letter uh, or a map. No, I wish I had a hard copy. Uh, yeah, so if, you, if, yeah, if you're audiobook, you won't see this, but it's always important when she actually puts a kind of facsimile picture of something in a book because it means this is a really vital clue, which it turns out to be. So, yeah, Bridge, I, I don't know. Um, I played it a bit in university, actually. Um, they had a university bridge club, but it kind of feels like I, I don't really know anyone who plays Bridge now. Maybe some of the sort of grandma, grandpa generation still do, but it feels like it's, it's kind of gone. Um, but if anyone out there plays bridge, let us know because we would like to learn and refresh and maybe get yeah, into it. I'm definitely ready. So interesting fact about this book. Mm. Um, it was published on my birthday. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, obviously not my birthday year. Very, very cool facsimile hard copy, and I'm now gonna post it to you because I feel you should own you should own the book for your birthday. That's such a cool happy like little yeah, lovely. Um, um okay, well, and well I was thinking she must have already been writing this when ABC came out. Or at least have had the idea because Poirot basically describes the setup. Um, in yeah, because January to November, I mean, that's not a, a long time. Um, and this this one is fairly lengthy. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting when you read, she's got um, these very famous notebooks that she kept where she scribbled down ideas and plots and characters, very similar to the notebooks that you photographed and sent me, Hannah. Very similar in like, you know, ideas all over the place and arrows and lines and boxes of characters. And she would often have loads and loads of ideas floating about at the same time that she was working on simultaneously. A bit like Ariadne Oliver says, like, I have so many ideas. The idea is not the problem. The problem is like wrestling it down into a book. But if you think about it, in 1935, she published Three-Act Tragedy and Death in the Clouds. In 36, ABC Murders, Murder in Mesopotamia and Cards on the Table. 37, Dumb Witness, Death on the Nile. 30, so, I mean, this was... No, 1934, she did Orange Express, Unfinished Portrait, and Why Didn't I Ask Evans? I mean, she's doing two or three books a year. So she yeah. clearly yeah. has to have all the ideas on the go at the same time, right? It's very um, much a nine to five. Yeah. Which is in fantastic. You know, she's not Although in a way, yeah, I'm just saying. Actually, this was published in the US in 37. But yeah, in the, in the UK, it was published 30, in 36. So this was a three book year. And three, you know, Murder in Mesopotamia was not good, which is why we did not do a full podcast on it. But this definitely is. Um, okay, listeners, so we're going to carry on talking 
without spoilers. Um, then there's going to be the end credit music, and then we will get into the solution. So you're safe to listen for this bit. Um, shall we get into the characters, Hannah? So we have our four detectives, our Hercule Poirot, private detective, Superintendent Battle, who's a Scotland Yard policeman. Um, we've got Colonel Race, who's a sort of shadowy, maybe a spy working for British intelligence. And we have Ariadne Oliver, who is an Agatha Christie-style detective writer. Um, how did you find Poirot in this book? This is where we miss Sander, right? The Poirotness of Poirot. <laughs> I know. Um, I thought he was actually uh, fairly tame in this one compared to some of the others um, as his self-importance and self, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, proclamation. <laughs> And I think it's because, uh, you know, he he doesn't have a Hastings with him in this book. He doesn't, he doesn't have, yeah. yeah, he doesn't have sort of um, anyone to abuse. He's got Battle, who's very competent, I would argue. Um, what I got out of it is he actually respects um, Battle more than Jap in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Um, Superintendent Battle, definitely. I think Agatha Christie goes to great pains to show us. A, just how good Battle is, and B, how much Poirot respects him. And I actually, I think this softens Poirot for me. Because I think in the other books, you often see him, re you know, like he really does take the piss out of Hastings. And, you know, he likes Jap, but I don't think he thinks of Jap as an equal. Whereas actually, I think Poirot emerges here as softer because he genuinely does get on with um, Battle and respect him. And I think probably right. Colonel Race too, but we don't see much of Race. So... I think it's like yeah, kind of race doesn't really come under his scrutiny that much, but he's also not that yeah. present. Um, I do, and I think that he has a certain amount of respect for Ariadne Oliver as well. Like he, oh yeah, yeah, and it, and I Especially don't believe their that relationship goes like, on. Like, oh, haha, ha, that's so cute. You're a detective writer. No, no, what yeah. you're talking about? He's he actually treats her with a lot of grace. Um and appreciates yeah. what she has to contribute so it does it does really soften him a bit i mean he still has his poroness and his edge <laughs> it's just not to the extent that it normally is yeah i think that i was trying to find some good poirot quotes to whet xander's appetite one of them was i have a bourgeois attitude to murder i disapprove of it but then she takes issue with him saying that like that was a very strange <laughs> moment for me personally. I know. And then the second quote, which I think really is a bit more Poirot and a bit more arrogant. He says, it is not my business, no, but all the same, it offends my amour propre. So my, sen you know, my, my honour, my sense of myself. I consider it an impertinence, you comprehend, for a murder to be committed under my very nose by someone who mocks himself at my ability to solve it. So it's almost like he's going to solve the murder, not because of, you know, feeling a duty of justice to the victim, but because he's pissed off that someone would murder someone in the room next to him and not think he could solve it. So yeah. um, that's peak for it. <laughs> he, has, he has one towards the beginning, too, on his first meeting with Shaitana, where he's, he's talking about how ridiculous Shaitana looks with his yeah. mustache. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Oh, and you're like Poirot, but we we learnt in the in ABC Murders that you dye your moustache. What are you doing? <laughs> uh, 
then we have Superintendent Battle. And we've already said that, you know, this is a really interesting character. We actually met him in The Secret at Chimneys, a very early kind of action adventure novel, which a lot of people think is rubbish. Um, and he's kind of like quite a very mysterious and impressive but minor character in that. He's now older, he's more senior, as is Poirot. I mean, Poirot, when we meet him at the first, is just a sort of retired refugee of no standing. But by now, he's very rich, he's very well-traveled, um, he's at home in a drawing room of Mr. Shaitana. But yeah, Superintendent Battle, there's a really interesting exchange where Rhoda Dawes, one of the characters, says, what is Superintendent, Superintendent Battle like? Asked Rhoda curiously. Major Despard said gravely, He's an extraordinarily astute man, a man of remarkable ability. Oh, said Rhoda, and said he looked rather stupid. A further quotation, which I think tells you a lot about both Despard, that he's a good judge of character, but also Anne, that she isn't. And there's another quote, my final quote on battle, from Poirot. The good square superintendent battle. He may look wooden, but he is not wooden in the head, not at all. I agree, yeah. said Despard. That stolidity is a pose. He is a very clever and able officer. And I think Agatha Christie is trying to tell us, A, that Poirot is able to respect people, but also I think she's also telling us something about Despard because he's obviously one of the suspects. But I think we're meant to think that because he rates Battle, who Poirot also rates, maybe that reflects well on him. Um, how did you find Battle as a character? I really I really enjoyed him. I like Jap also, but obviously to be more competent. So... I enjoyed the dynamic with him and Poirot, especially of sort of having an equal for mm. seems like the first time, at least in a long time. Um, even even when he's with his friend from the company Wagon Lee in Orient Express, he's still condescending to to his friend, you know, and making yeah, comments. Oh, no, you don't get it. You don't you don't see what I see and. He never does that with battle. He really is taking in his information in equal measure. He's never like, oh, how could he be so stupid to not understand? He, like, when battle's like, what's your game with the bridge scores? He just yeah. explains it. Mm. There's no, yeah, it's it's really, really fascinating seeing Poirot in this kind of relationship. It's interesting, actually, because this book is written in the third person. So we're not constrained by having it be someone's diaries or Captain Hastings memoirs. And so right. Agatha Christie can just take us off with battle for, for us to observe how he gathers information when he goes to the West Coast. And, you know, she, there's a really lovely passage where she kind of describes him just going around the village, talking to different people. Some might have thought he was like buying a house. Some might have thought he was, you know, a workman. Like he doesn't really give away his identity, but somehow manages to get the information out. And I just thought it was like a really good description of a policeman basically just trying to figure out what's going on with the case. And we've never really had that before. I, and um, I love he he's not locking Poirot out, but he's not no. relying either. He is literally doing his job with all the resources that he has possible like the way he questions dr robert's secretary so is very critical like the way that he has the tail put on this boss the way that he um sends the cute kid up to that one village to get mm. information because he knows you know the the dashing young what is it constable oliver he'll get more out of the washerwomen than battle will you know yeah, exactly it's so he's clever, and, he's, and he's great at his job and it's nice 
it's a nice reminder that in this little world she's built, she's aware that it can't all be on Poro like he's some superhuman. There has to be underlying solid police work within yeah, Scotland. Especially, especially if you want to get a conviction at some point on someone. Yeah, um, and he seems like a genuinely good man. Like, yeah. he seems respectful to women. He seems respectful to his colleagues, respectful to the public's privacy. You know, he just seems like a good man and a good cop. And I, I do hope we see him again. I enjoyed him a lot. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, Secret at Chimneys is a slightly weird book. It's more in a sort of kind of semi-trying-to-be-PG Woodhouse um, era in the 20s. But if you do like Battle, it, it's worth checking that one out because he is in that. He is uh, the cop. I mean, there's, there, there isn't a Poirot in that one. And he's, um, he's pretty good in that too. Um, okay, so over to Colonel Race, who we will meet again, but um, does not really feature much in this. I mean, he's so Colonel Race is this very dashing. Um, there was a period of Agatha Christie in her early 20s where she clearly had a type. And that type was a sort of sun sort of kissed, muscular, real man's man, colonial adventurer who was off in Africa. And she kind of married a guy, her first husband, who was a little bit in that mold and then he kind of let her down. Um, but she does occasionally bring back these types. And I think Major Despard and Colonel Race are kind of the same character in a way. These kind of men's men who dash, you know, daring do, run around the empire, sort of visiting Kabul and putting down a sort of an uprising there or going off into the Brazilian jungle. But Colonel Race doesn't, I found it, he's one of my favourite characters in Death and Love, but I just didn't really have a feeling for him in this book. And basically all he does, I mean, all the four detectives are assigned after the murder to go and go and follow up on particular suspects. And he just basically does a, a few international background checks on Major Despard and says, I've got to fuck off now to Afghanistan because I've got to go and do some secret work. And then he, he just goes halfway through the novel. And it was like, what? He just he just went? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. He does like the Irish goodbye in the office. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> but how did you find him? Because this is presumably, well, no, you've done Death on the Nile. But how did you find him here? Um, I honestly didn't recognize that he's from Death on the Nile until you said it right he's 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 in for about five minutes in this yeah (laughs) um now that you said it i'm like oh that's right i would say underutilized except for the fact that between battle perot and oliver in this like it's very well-rounded so i don't miss him like i don't need it it's cheeky how he pops in with the info but I didn't take his info too much into account because he just sort of like lays it down on the table and is like, I think that this is the truth. Yeah. And everyone's like, okay, good enough. So I didn't really like credit it that much. I mean, there's no reason why Battle couldn't have just like telegrammed someone in Brazilian police and got the info anyway. Yeah, I, my my, my yeah. secret theory, well, not secret theory, my theory is that he's actually too similar to Major Despard. And so Agatha Christie struggled to make him like a separate character. So she just wrote him out. I think mm. it's like really cheeky. I think she was like, I need four detectives because I need, you know, that's the symmetry. And then she's right. halfway through writing the book. She's like, oh, yeah, I've just got really nothing to give him. And she likes to work with detectives in a three, like Hastings, Jap and Poirot, or here, Battle, Poirot and Ariadne Oliver. I just feel it was maybe overkill. And she was just like, fuck it, I'm just going to write him out. 
<laughs> yeah. Pretty hilarious. Um, okay, so enough with Colonel Ray's until we get to Death on the Nile. And then last, but definitely not least, Ariadne Oliver, who will be a repeat character like Colonel Race. She is a pastiche, basically, of Agatha Christie. She is also middle-aged, also slightly uh, chubby. She has a Finnish detective, not a Belgian detective. Um, she talks a lot about women's intuition, a bit like Miss Marple, actually. She instinctively, like her big, her big solution to the murder of the four potential suspects is, oh, definitely Roberts. He has a Welsh name. Can't trust the Welsh. Right. Um, she is clearly smart. She's capable. She's good fun to be around. She's no nonsense. She's successful, financially very successful, but not self-important. You know, she's got a real lightness of touch. She's not pompous. And she is treated as an equal, both by uh, Poirot and Battle, who have no hesitation into, you know, bringing her into them, their circle, even though she's not detected in real life before. And I think that just really says something about her as a character and them as characters and Agatha Christie really showing, you know, this meta character to be an equal at the table. Um, so, yeah, how did you find Ariadne Oliver? Um, I I did enjoy her. I found it very touching when she has Rhoda over and gives her, you know, Rhoda asks, if I buy one of your books, can I post it to you? And will you sign it for me? And she said, oh, no, I'll do you one better and takes her to a cabinet, you know, pick one. And I found that really endearing. I wonder if that opened up Christy to some, you know, insane random, request. Random fan girls turning up at her block of flats thinking, oh, yeah, do you think I'll get hot coffee and butter yeah, too? She might have felt about that. Um, I really enjoyed the, it's third person, but sort of from her POV little inner monologue thing, um, getting out of the car, that cracked me yeah. up. Yeah. Because I drive what I call my little clown car. It's very compact and yeah. I'm not quite middle-aged, but I'm certainly overweight. And I, I'm like, I feel you, girl. Slamming your well, knee I am, into the... I am exactly <laughs> the age that Agatha Christie was when she wrote this book. I'm probably around the same size. And I can certainly tell you that when I try and get my husband's like quite low to the ground sports car I, I have to like be like oh the knees <laughs> so I, I sympathize with it too but it, it is such a you know she's portraying a very powerful businesswoman and an incredibly successful popular author and yet it's so charming and so disarming I think it's lovely when Rhoda Dawes meets her for the first time she says you're so different from what I imagined a disappointment I expect says said Mrs Oliver serenely I'm used to that I mean how heartbreakingly hilarious I like the bit where she's never done a real murder before. And you know what? I don't think it's my line. <laughs> we get a lovely, lovely impression of her. So this is the impression of, uh, well, Mrs. Oliver when Rhoda goes to her flat. So Rhoda perceived a battered kitchen table with a typewriter on it, masses of typescript littered all over the floor, and Mrs. Oliver, her hair in wild confusion, rising from a somewhat rickety-looking chair. Oh, my dear, how nice to see you, Mrs. said Mrs. Oliver, holding out a carbon-stained hand and trying with her other to smooth her hair. A quite impossible proceeding. A paper bag touched by her elbow fell from the desk and apples rolled energetically all over the floor. And one of the things in this book is she's just had bangs cut or a fringe cut, as we'd say in English, and she keeps forgetting and she'll sort of ruffle her hair and her hair will like vertically stick up at the front. I mean, it's just, it's so ramshackle and lovely. I feel she's definitely one of us. She gets out of the car and a bunch of apple cores fall out and then she's in the house and a bunch of apples go rolling about. 
And actually, this is a trope we've seen before. Like Agatha Christie tried to give us a detective writer in Death in the Clouds, and he was addicted to bananas. So he was she was obviously like trying out the idea of including a, a fake Agatha. And there's also another really lovely passage, which I'm going to pretty much just read out, which describes the writing. And because I think this must be very close to how Agatha Christie really felt. And I think for the listener, this will be quite fun. So Rhoda says, fangirling. This is such a like stan, like standum kind of like relationship. Oh, Mrs. Oliver, it must be marvellous to write. Mrs. Oliver rubbed her forehead with a carbony finger and said, why? Oh, said Rhoda, a little taken aback, because it must, it must be wonderful just to sit down and write off a whole book. Um, and shades of George R.R. R. Martin here for all of us uh, George R.R. R. Martin fans. It doesn't, it doesn't happen exactly like that, said Mrs. Oliver. One actually has to think, you know, and thinking is always a bore and you have to plan things and then one gets stuck every now and then and you feel like you'll never get out of the mess, but you do. Writing's not particularly enjoyable. It's hard work like everything else. Doesn't seem like work, said Rhoda. Not to you, said Mrs. Oliver, because you don't have to do it. It feels very like work to me. Some days I can only keep going by repeating over and over to myself the amount of money I might get for my next serial rights. That spurs you on, you know. So does your bank book when you see how much overdrawn you are. I never imagined you actually typed your books yourself, said Rhoda. I thought you'd have a secretary. I did have a secretary and I used to try and dictate to her, but she was so competent that it used to depress me. I felt she knew so much more about English and grammar and full stops and semicolons than I did, that it gave me a kind of inferiority complex. Then I tried a thoroughly incompetent secretary, but of course that didn't answer very well either. It must be so wonderful to be able to think of things, said Rhoda. Oh, I can always think of things, said Mrs. Oliver happily. What's so tiring is writing them down. I always think I've finished, and then when I count it up, I've only written 30,000 words instead of 60,000. And so then I have to throw in another murder and get the heroine kidnapped again. It's all very boring. Um, so that was a long extract, but I think it just, it there, there's so much probably truth about lots of writers in there, that it is mm. work, is hard, and... You know, I think it's kind of brave of Agatha Christie to say, you know, sometimes I just do this because I want to, like, get some money in. I like money. Money is important to me. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that message up. I'm, I meant to also because, you know, we've talked on this reread before about well, she must have just done this one for the paycheck, like very phoned in, you know, mm. not all of them are great. And at a certain point when you're churning out, I mean, what? a couple of dozen or more real bangers in your lifetime. Of course, there's going to be some duds in the mix and some ones that you just did for the money. And for her to own up to that in this way is, um, I think, also really special, you know, where she's now at a status where she can say that publicly, sort of, you know, vicariously through her character and um, and not and not be ashamed about it. You know, it's. It reminded me of if you've ever seen the show Community at the very mm. end, the character Abed says it's TV, you know, it's OK for it to have a day off. It's OK for it to phone in something. It's a companion and it's art and, and not all of it is brilliant, but it's there for you. Yeah, and exactly. It's reliably there for you. It's a Christie for Christmas. Genuine, you know, and so um, yeah. we should be forgiving to some of the artists in our midst. You know, yeah, they're not all going to be bangers like M. Night Shyamalan, for example. They're not all yeah. winners, but look at his body of work. Look at the things that he has given us that are so intriguing. Don't let the off days diminish the great days. Right? Exactly. I mean, the book literally before this, Murder in Mesopotamia, is just terrible. 
And yet it's sandwiched by ABC murders and this. So I think I think it is just a, pe- a plea for kindness. Um, mm. And I do find it also quite touching that, you know, when she talks about the secretary, he knew grammar better than she did. And you have to think Agatha Christie never went to school. She was educated badly by governesses at home and basically only got a smidgen of education because World War One happened and she went out to be a volunteer trainee nurse. And, you know, I bet, you know, to be like one of the most famous, most successful commercially, you know, incredibly successful authors of your time and never to have really been taught properly. I bet she did probably, you know, have sort of insecurities and imposter syndrome about, you know, she mm-hmm. wasn't part of the Bloomsbury group and T.S. Eliot and all the highfalutin peeps out there in this period. But she was incredibly well liked. So uh, good for Agatha Christie. If like Queen Elizabeth II had sort of known that about her and had maybe a a care for that because Queen Elizabeth II was also not, you know, she wasn't educated to her, the position she ended up having in life. And and I I think she was very um, uh, sort of self-conscious about that and felt very, I think she she she's on the record as saying that she resented that she wasn't educated properly. Yeah. And again, like Agatha Christie, it was educated by governesses at home, and she did have some constitutional history, so she was taught literally what it means to be the queen. But other than that, and um, she always used to resent it. But what I find fascinating about Queen Elizabeth II, and also about Agatha Christie, is that as life, their kind of position allowed them to travel and see things in the world and talk to interesting people and I think both of them were amazing autodidacts and I often think by the end of her life Queen Elizabeth II must have known more than most about human nature and about you know she'd visited ridiculous numbers of countries she'd met practically every world leader she'd lived through political crises I mean so much knowledge had accrued to her and Agatha Christie taught herself to be a detective novelist talked herself basically to be an on an archaeologist's dig taught herself to manage business affairs i mean yeah both really impressive right yeah Um, oh definitely you know it's actually worth noting that speaking of queen elizabeth ii 1936 was an absolutely kind of crazy year in britain because the the king george v died in the year and then his son edward VIII ascended to the throne but then also abdicated resulting in queen elizabeth's father king george vi coming to the throne so it was the year of of three kings um so it was a very turbulent time for england and so i suppose maybe something like this book would have given a lot of people in the country a lot of good escapism right i mean you know real real need for stuff like this it's also the year in which alan turing submitted his paper on computable numbers to the london mathematical society introducing the concept of the turing machine so there you go how cool is that it's what a year yeah, what a year. And obviously the rise of fascism in Europe and Yeah, the thirties are such a weird time. Like you've got all- a whole a whole generation still recovering from one war. You're looking down the barrel at another big one. Fuck. Crazy. It's That's actually the realize it's I mean, there must have been, must have been a lot of like, depression and sensibility of like, well, what the hell's the point? You know, there must have been a lot of ennui. Yeah. And fear, just straight up fear. I mean, most of these people had fought in World War One, had lost family members in World War One, And like thinking another world war's coming your way. It's also the year, I hadn't realized this, of the Battle of Cable Street, which is a street that I drive down quite a lot now, actually. It's in East London, kind of between the city and Canary Wharf now. And it's where Oswald Mosley, the little fuck, um, yeah, 
And his British Union of Fascists had a street uh, march. Um, and basically, the people of East London, the ordinary working class people of East London came out, basically just beat the crap out of them, told them to fuck off. So I mean, it would have been a motley crew of like trade unionists, communists, anarchists, British Jews. Yeah, um, I was going to say Irish emigre workers, people. socialist groups. It was a real kind of like Antifa um, of its time. And it was just like a real independent Labour Party. It was like a real union of people coming together and actually the London, the Metropolitan Police. So basically, yeah, to me, that was like if Britain was ever going to turn to fascism, Oswald Mosley was going to try it and he tried it. And London came together and just said, no, bugger off. We're not having any of that nonsense here. So, um, it gives really me like the creeps when you say it. Yeah, but there you it go. That uh, makes my blood run cold. It's like right up there with like Himmler and Hitler to me. Ugh, gross. But the numbers are amazing, actually. So there were two to three thousand, up to five thousand fascists, which sounds like a lot because Cable Street ain't big. Then there's six to seven thousand policemen, which is quite a lot. And then the anti-fascist counter demonstrators range from a hundred thousand to three hundred thousand. God damn, good for them. So 5,000 fascists versus 100,000 to 300,000 bloody angry Londoners. I mean, like... Well, yeah. and you have to imagine those numbers are proportionate if you extrapolated them to the rest of the country, you know? Yeah. I mean, that just makes me so proud of... I mean, not that, as I think we'll find out later in this episode, not that England was not a place with racism, anti-Semitism, misogyny. I'm not saying that by any means... It was in some way like the superior sort of place to be. That kind of makes me proud. Um, yeah, that right. makes me feel good. Well, hold on to that thought because we're going to get into some of the shit stuff in this novel later. But anyway, interesting year for a novel that maybe, you know, was therefore reassuring to readers. I mean, nice to have a puzzle novel that is kind of bracketed in a kind of safe world, right? That there's evil in this world, but we can pick from these four people and we can solve it and we can triumph over it. I guess that must have felt like a... A pretty reassuring concept in the time of Hitler. Okay, so those are our, our detectives. Should we get into Shaitana, the victim, the victim of this crime, the host of the dinner party? Well, he's not there for a lot, but I think he's a lot like Metastopheles. I think it's mentioned once or twice. Mm. <laughs> or 15 times. <laughs> well, I mean, his name is, is loosely based on Satan, right? I mean, he used oh, to love playing, he used to love playing fancy dresses, Mephistopheles. I mean, this is a guy who is obviously very rich, collects beautiful, ornate objects. I mean, he's a complete shit in some respects. I mean, like, he, he was playing a dangerous game. He used to, like, wheedling secrets out of people. And he had collected the four people together who are the suspects because he believed that they had all committed murder and gotten away with it. So he was like, I want to collect, I want to collect objet d'art, but I also want to collect successful murderers. And then he held that information over them. And you sort of feel like, what an idiot. Like, if you collect successful murderers who've gotten away with it and somehow tell them that you know that they're successful murderers, do you not think one of them's going to have a go at murdering you? Right. <laughs> um, I, okay, so the, the Arabic word for God is Allah mm. and the Arabic... Uh, well, I don't know if it's Arabic or just Islamic word for the devil is shaitan. Yeah, same in uh, same in some of the Indian languages that we speak as well. So yeah, so and, but uh, I think yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, to draw that connection, well, and then the the Faustian 
references, you know, to him being the devil's aide or, you know, right hand man, sort of, sort of. I think he's maybe painted a little too heavily in that light, given the fact that he is an innocent. He's just an extravagant person with maybe a little too much hubris. Like Perot sums it up towards the end of the book of he was a stupid man. Yeah, you know? exactly. So the, the quote is, he played the part of the devil too well, but he was not the devil. Of Fon, he was a stupid man and so he died. It is the sin that is never forgiven and always punished, which is kind of brutal betrayal. So Gillian yes. Gill, the author I mentioned earlier, thinks it's deliberate that she paints him almost like a pantomime villain. And she says that um, she is subverting kind of racist expectations by making the quote unquote suspicious foreigner actually the victim. So, quote, in Christie's worldview and the world of her fiction, evil is both very real and hard to spot. It does not advertise itself with elaborate dinner jackets, sinister mustachios and wicked repartee. So I think her point is that this is this guy who is very clearly foreign and a lot of people are kind of racist about because he is foreign, especially Major Despard. Um, but actually, you might be lured if you're a reader of the time who is a little bit racist, because I think pretty much everyone was. To think less of him and to think, oh, he's just, he is Satan and he's foreign and he's evil. But actually, he turns out to be the, the victim. So I don't know if the listener and if you want to give Agatha Christie the benefit of the doubt that she's trying to make a point that we shouldn't judge a book by its cover. But that's Gillian Gill's theory anyways. Okay, so let's get into the four suspects who we know that Shaitana has collected together because he thinks they've gotten away with murder. So we kind of, as the reader, have to make a decision about, do we believe that they got away with murder? And then secondly, do we believe that they murdered Shaitana because he knew? So there's kind of two layers to it. Um, the first one is Dr. Roberts, who is a very kind of fashionable, very well-paid private doctor, has lots of patients, seems very respectable. I suppose there could always be the suspicion with a doctor that he's murdered one of his patients deliberately, but... Just seems very regular, respectable. How do you, without giving away the ending, how do you find Dr. Roberts as a character? You know, pretty standard Christie suspect. I found him very similar to the dentist guy in um, Death in the Clouds, you know, for the first act of that book. Yeah, very kind of anonymous professional. In the mix, he's kind of young. Uh, yeah. And he's just kind of, I feel like he's not very charismatic compared to Major Despard. I mean, Major Despard, we're told, is an absolute dreamboat. He's really good looking. We know that he is he's a bit like Colonel Race and all those kind of characters, like from like the man in the brown suit in the early Christie's, who's like irresistible adventurer, a bit like an Indiana Jones type. And he's like, he's like a real man's man in that kind of like very macho way that I think Agatha Christie really straightforwardly admired it in the 1920s. And by the 1930s, she was almost starting to find it a bit ridiculous. And you see that with how she treats Colonel Arbuthnot in Orient Express. She finds it a little bit old fashioned and has less patience for it. But this, this is the quote that sums him up. Never take anything for granted, Miss Dawes. I don't set as much value on human life as most people do. All this hysterical fuss about road deaths, for instance. Man is always in danger from traffic, from germs, from 101 things. As well be killed one way as another. The moment you begin being careful of yourself, adopting as your motto, safety first, you might as well be dead, in my opinion. I mean, what a douche. But anyway, how did you find Major Despard, Anna? You know, I didn't really. I, he's, to me, he was so uh, background. 
not there for a lot of it. He's meant to be our action hero. Yeah, and, but yeah. he's meant to be our big action hero. So that's kind I, of interesting. Uh, to me, that's a fail on Agatha Christie's part if you find him blending into the background. I I feel like I have more of an explanation of why, but I have to save it for the second half. Okay, well, we'll save that for the spoiler section. Uh, then we have Mrs. Lorimer, who is a very, a bit like Dr. Roberts, just very respectable, upper middle class. She's a widow, rich widow, elegant, uh, formidable. She's by far the best bridge player. Um, she is very smart, like the way she describes the bridge game. Poirot seems to be really impressed with her. In a book where he's already impressed with Battle and Ariadne Oliver, he says, quote, she has probably the best brain of the four. He really expresses genuine kind of astonishment and appreciation for her. Um, just a real class act, right? Even though she's a suspected murderer. So, Mrs. Lorimer, thoughts, feelings? I have a lot to say on her for the second part. But for this first part, I will say that um, I actually enjoyed her character, not for the suspected murder part, but for her card playing. I really found a lot of myself in that description. So there's this very complicated card game that um, my family plays when we're all together. And it's it's called, uh, we call it Nervous, but I guess the real name of it is Nerf. Basically, it's a mixture between Speed and Solitaire. Every player oh. plays with their own deck, and you play off the aces communally, and Speed is a big factor. And I'm I'm quite good at it through a lot of practice, but... Part of what makes me really good at it is I can keep track of my own cards and everyone else around me playing. Oh I my keep goodness, track you are Mrs. Lorimer. <laughs> yeah, I keep track of what they're turning up. So if they lay something down, I need to make a move. I'm right there. Boom. with it. And they always are like, how do you do that? And it's just like, I keep, it's where I keep, everything's moving and I keep it moving. And very rarely am I caught boxed out of a move like that because I'm watching their cards and I'm watching my cards. Yeah. Well, there you go. You're definitely Mrs. Lorimer, but I can't wait to hear what you say in the spoiler section. And then our final suspected murderer and potential murderer of Shaitana is a younger girl who is not like Mrs. Lorimer and Dr. Roberts, a sort of well-to-do upper middle class person. She's someone who... Is probably a little bit poorer. She's younger, looks very nervous, quite meek and mild. And her name is Anne Meredith. Um, and she has worked as a companion to an old lady, just like the heroine of uh, Mystery of the Blue Train. Um, and she's up at the dinner party too. And she has a housemate who's much richer than her called Rhoda Dawes, who you've heard me uh, mention before, a listener who is, by contrast with Anne Meredith, very independent-spirited. Um, she's a bit like Anne Bedingfield in Man of the Brown Suit. She, she's a lot more in the sort of mode of some of those Agatha Christie, young, bright young thing, independent young women. But they are quite a modern pair. You know, they they share a house in a village. They, they're quite independent. Um, so Anne Meredith is our last suspect. Any thoughts on Anne that you can share, spoiler-free? Yeah, she's pretty seemingly one one dimensional, and perhaps because I just rewatched the miniseries, but a little Jane Eyre, quiet, knowing her place. I did find it very interesting with the bridge scores how mm. picks up on the fact that she comes from poverty because she 
flips her card over and writes on the back. Yeah, she uses um, both sides of the paper. And it made me wonder if Christy herself had maybe once seen someone do that at a card game and asked why. Or maybe did that herself. I mean, you have to remember that she grew up very wealthy, but when her father died and she was a teenager, they lost all the money. And she went from being very well-to-do to having to really work for a living. And maybe that was something she felt she had to do. Yeah, maybe. Uh, she often writes of people who've gone through, you know, periods of poverty, but then periods of wealth. There's a really interesting character in Lord Edgware Dies, who's an actress, and um, Poirot comments on the fact that, you know, when you look at the contents of the handbag, there's like a really, some parts look really kind of well-made, like it might be a well, a very expensive handkerchief, but then it might be a cheap compact. And, you know, this idea that you can see the fluctuations in people's income through their their habits and what they were, I think is really interesting and probably sadly comes from her life as someone who's both incredibly, not super poor, but like definitely in reduced circumstances and then was incredibly wealthy. It seemed like one of those things where she writes it and it comes from a real life anecdote. Mm, absolutely. And I appreciate it. It really stuck out to me because I do that too, you know, I'll write on both sides and uh, mm. we'll make copies of like, if we're playing Balderdash, we'll make little copies of the scorecards and things. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, so we've gone through all the characters in some detail, listener, because, you know, there are basically nine or ten and it's worth doing so. Um, before we get into adaptations and the spoilery bit, let's do the sad bit of every episode where we kind of talk a little bit about how the book has aged. And I think in some ways it hasn't aged at all. I mean, it's just still really fun to read, but um, obviously the bridge isn't as popular, so that's a clear way in which it's aged. But also there is regressive stuff in there that's a bit disturbing. And I think you as a listener and a reader can make a decision on whether Agatha Christie actually thinks this stuff or whether she's making a comment on people who do. Because obviously Mr. Shaitana with his very theatrical and sort of Middle Eastern look comes in for a lot of racism. And I think maybe you can go with Gillian Gill and say that Agatha Christie's telling us this is wrong, but it is in the book. So... Major Despard says of Shaitana, why did you want to, oh, someone says to him, why did you want to kick him, Major Despard? Because he's he's the sort of Dago he needed kicking badly. And Dago being a very pejorative word for South Europeans, particularly Spanish, and really unpleasant. Like no one would use that word today, I would hope, um, in England, but would have been common then. It's the first time we've seen it in Christie, actually. It's really shocking because it's used a couple of times. And it's used by Despard, who's meant to be kind of like our dashing hero, which again makes me think that Christie's starting to cool on that type of guy. But then Agatha Christie, even in the third person, says, quote, every healthy Englishman who saw Shaitana longed earnestly and fervently to kick him. They said with a singular lack of originality, there goes that damn Dago Shaitana. And you just think, oh my God. Like, is that how she felt? Is that what she thinks of English people at the time? Is she making a point? It's just really uncomfortable to read. And then he also gets anti-Semitism, just to add to the mix. Mrs. Oliver says, perhaps Shaitan was a moneylender. He has a very oily look, so coded for Jewish. Um, and it's proper anti-Semitism. So at some point, uh, Major Despard recommends to Anne Meredith that she gets a lawyer. And Rhoda asks her how the meeting went. And she says, all right, darling, what was the solicitor like? Very dry and legal. And Anne Meredith's response is, quote, rather alert and Jewish. Like, why would you have to specify that your lawyer was Jewish? Um, weird. And then just to round out the lovely um, gorgeousness of the crappy racism, you get proper anti-black racism. Despard 
says, I never forget a face, even a black one. I mean, God, like, uh, and then when someone's talking about someone dying in, in South America, um, someone says, quote, I wonder what they did with all that lovely lot of clothes. They're blacks out there, so they couldn't wear them because a black person can't wear a white person's clothes. And then Colonel Race, as he kind of, you know, justifies giving an opinion on the case before going off to Afghanistan, declares that Major Despard could not have committed murder because Despard's, quote, a white man. So a white man can't have committed a murder. And actually Poirot does take him to task on that, says, what, you think white men have never committed murder? What are you talking about, mate? But it, I think there is a lot of, there's a lot of really nasty stuff about Shaitan. A lot of it comes from Despard. And I really do feel... Agatha Christie's a little bit changing her mind about these colonial types and realizing just how abhorrent they are. Maybe because by this point she has traveled more in the Middle East and um, has seen more different people and has seen how they're treated. But, you know, it does creep in even into the third person. So maybe it is partly Hashfall. I don't know, but it makes me upset. So there we go. Any thoughts yeah, on that? Pretty gross. Pretty gross. Um, there are adaptations to move move the subject to something less disturbing. There's one of the David Suchet Hercule uh, Poros from the British channel ITV, which I think is actually very well done and very well cast. And it's really, yeah, it's very faithful and perfectly good to watch. I'm taking it that you listen to the audio, but Hannah, would you recommend that? Is it good? Uh, yeah, very good. It's funny because if you're used to listening to him in uh, stories that have Jap Inspector Jap, his his battle voice is very similar to Jap, so it can be a little bit uh, <laughs> me at times like, oh, where'd Jap come in? But then you remember, oh no, he's not in this. It's the whole thing. It's uh, not a radio play with this one, so it's the full book with all the narration. Oh, okay, cool. Well, there you go, listen, you've got two good options. Very faithful TV adaptation, and you've also got a full audio book. It's a really cracking book. If you haven't read it, it's not as famous as like ABC Murders, but I think it really... It really is a great read. And if you look a like a real sort of closed room locked locked house mystery, then this is this is for sure one for you. And Agatha Christie plays very fair. There are it's it's a tricky ending, but there are it's not like a a playing with the genre. Like it plays fair with the reader. The cards are on the table. So it genuinely is a fun one to try and puzzle out. Um but anyway, we hope you've really enjoyed this episode. We're gonna come back after the break with some uh, some solution-y discussions <laughs> can't wait to see um how hannah feels about what really happened um if you haven't read this then please please don't listen to that please go read it and then tune in for that but the next novel we'll be doing is dumb witness which was published in 1937 i'm going to do that as a mini pod because it's definitely very minor poirot and then the big one for 1937 which hopefully we'll get the three musketeers of me hannah and sander back for is Death on the Nile, which is fantastic. So, and has some very big screen adaptations. So if you are following along at home and want to read along with us, Death on the Nile is definitely worth your while. Right then, Hannah, let's get into the solution. So the listener, we know you know this because we know you're not naughty enough to listen without knowing the solution, is that Major Despard actually isn't really a murderer. He killed a man in um, South America. He was actually aiming to shoot him in the leg. He was delirious with fever, but the the wife um, kind of jolted the gun and it shot him in the back. So he's not really a murderer and he didn't do this. 
Mrs. Lorimer is a murderer. She murdered her husband, but in an act of complete class, never tells Poirot why. At one point, she confesses to the murder, however, because she's dying, has only a few months to live and thinks it will give Anne Meredith the chance to live her life free of suspicion, which is quite a noble thing. Anne Meredith um, is also a murderer. She's also a petty thief. She had murdered one of her lady companions who realised she was a thief. And then when she realises that Rhoda Dawes um, knows and is the only person who knows, she um, conspires to kill her too. But luckily, Major Despard saves the day. But finally, the person who really, really did it is Dr. Roberts, who has been killing patients and takes the chance, right? And, and the mechanism by which he takes the chance is that he bids seven diamonds and is then doubled. So it's a very absorbing hand. It's a grand slam hand. And because the other players are very um, absorbed in the game, it leaves him free to go and make a drink, pick up their stiletto knife that's the objet d'art, the curio that Shaitana has, and stab him with it. He takes a chance because obviously Shaitana could have cried out in pain, but doesn't. And he thinks that because everyone's so absorbed in the game, they won't notice him, and they do not. So it's it's the respectable upper middle class, more English than English doctor, who kills the mysterious, nasty Mephistophelian foreigner. So one could argue that with that solution, Agatha Christie is telling us everything we need to know about trusting appearances and being racist and making assumptions about nasty foreigners because it's the more English than English uh, doctor who done it. Right, Hannah, go, go. What did you think of all of this? What did you think of Mrs. Lorimer? What did you think of this solution? <laughs> okay, so first of all, uh, right away um, after... So just as all the inquests begin, I'm pretty sure I had written this down either halfway through them questioning Mrs. Lorimer, which is chapter five or before that during chapter four. I wrote down who I thought from one to four. I ranked them of my Mm -hmm. suspects. So I ranked Anne Meredith as my number one suspect. I had uh, Major Despa as my number two. I had Lorimer as three and the doctor as four. Oh, no. Um, simply <laughs> because of the too obviousness of it. And, and uh, Ariadne Oliver saying he did it. He definitely did it um, kind of thing. However, I, I could have easily rotated those clockwise as well. But Anne Meredith was definitely my number one from the get-go. I really, I really thought it, it was her. I knew she was a bad egg from the start. So I had a couple of theories going when things kick off and they're, you know, out of the room, out out of the Shaitana's house, evolved into some pretty, pretty extraordinary theories. So around chapter 24, my big hypothesis that I wrote down is, and this is something I was on to pretty right away, Meredith is Shaitana's cook and a thief. She murdered him to shut him up. And my theory was, this was my working theory, because when they first get to the dinner party, Perot has an aside with Anne Meredith about, well, you know, his cook is so wonderful. Mm. And so I'm thinking how it would come out is that Perot knew that Anne Meredith was employed as his cook. And then I felt very sure of myself later when her and Rhoda are like, we make the best coffee. Yeah, that was so cool. (laughs) Because you never see the cook. You know, and so I thought it was going to be one of those uh, very much like Clue where 
you know, they're all invited there because they are everyone in the house is a suspect. And um, I was thinking that she actually poisoned his food and how it would go down is that all of them, like in Murder on the Orient Express, they all actually tried to kill him. Because they all have a motive. Because they all have a motive. So Anne Meredith really killed him because she poisoned him. And the reason he didn't cry out when he was stabbed is because he was already dead. Mm. That was my big, my big working theory. But I had a bunch of other ones of, um, you know. And my theory know- is, I think she would have done. Like, when she goes up and realizes he's dead, which is when yeah. Mrs. Lauren thinks she's done it. I think she would have had a go at doing it and didn't, didn't have to because he was already dead. So I think... Of the four, I don't think Mrs. Lorimer would have done it. And Major Despard di- didn't need to do it and wouldn't have done it. But I think actually Anne Meredith could have done it if Dr. Roberts hadn't already done it. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, she, to me, it's like, well, she let him die. You know, mm. cause I, I have a feeling it's implied that by the time she gets there, he's not actually dead. So she doesn't say anything and let him die. I don't think it was because she was afraid um, or trying to cover anything up anymore. I think she's like, oh, okay, cool. Somebody, job done. Like, yeah. Thanks. Happy days. Um, it's kind of I weird have... though, because even though like Dr. Roberts is horrible, I actually don't like Anne Meredith more. Like I think she's actually a pretty nasty person. Yeah. Because I just yeah. sort of feel like such a petty reason, like nicking stockings and nicking stuff, and then you kill people to cover it up. And basically, she tries to call Rhoda, yes, because you know she thinks Rhoda knows, but also because she's just jealous that Major Despard likes her more. I mean, it's so it's so nasty and selfish. Um, yeah, she's well, and, and it's like Poro says, you know, she's the most dangerous one because, you know, he makes mention of once you've decided who gets to live and who gets to die, you know, there's a lot of danger and power there. You know, you'll be empowered to do it again. Um, but also, uh, you know, um, truly like she has a taste for it now and everyone around her is disposable. And so she's an extremely dangerous psychopathic person i had i had some theories going uh you know she mentions that she's a member of a ladies naval and military club so i was thinking there was a connection between her and major despa for a while um like four times over roberts mentions his nervous patient and she displays signs of nervousness so is she a patient of his and then the one thing I was very disappointed in, I thought for sure that Mrs. Mm. Laura was going to turn out to be Mrs. Craddock, that she helped Roberts murder her husband and then fucked off to Egypt under her like maiden name or pseudonym of Lorimer, but that she her true identity is the Mrs. Craddock and she's not actually dead. And she Tana finds oh. that out and that would be her motive for the murder. And I was a little bit disappointed that that in fact was not the case. Wow. That would have been so cool, though. Um, up, like Egypt and Egypt, dead has poison husband, poison husband. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, it makes makes sense. It makes me wonder if maybe Agatha was doing that and then like got it in her head that it was no good, or someone advised her to steer clear of that. Like it was, if it was too much, if maybe, like, like Ariadne Oliver says, you got to winnow down. Maybe that's one of the links she winnowed down in the end, because it just to me it all lined up too too well. And then they admit to knowing each other, you know, so um, that part I was a little bit really fascinating. I mean, I I think that I don't know. I like Mrs. Lorimer because in a sense, she's a very sort of pure character. I mean, she she doesn't reveal to Poirot why she killed husband. She doesn't justify it. She doesn't apologize for it. She's willing to take the consequences. 
Um, she tries to do one good act for Anne Meredith, who she thinks has killed Shaitan. I mean, I think she's a really, it's very rare to hear Hercule Poirot really praise people. And he really evidently finds her absolutely fantastic. Yeah, her stoicism in the way the writing came through to me reminded me a lot of um, the Russian, is she a princess, a duchess character from um, Orient Express? Oh, uh, yes. Um, I know who you mean. Princess Dragomirov? Princess Dragomirov. Yes, she, yeah. she reminds me a lot of her, just the cadence and the... Mm. the brightness um and the fact you know the lack of apology just the matter of factness of yes this is what i've done and cards on the table that's what it is like i'm not going to try to make excuses apologize or or anything else about it it just is what it is um and i and i appreciate that perot like recognizes it and sort of admires it in a lot of ways Mm. yeah did you were you satisfied by the by the the answer by the solution because murder in mesopotamia has such a stupid solution like it just ruins the book for me um but was this one that i mean it's tricky because at first you think it's mrs lorimer confesses but poirot can't cope with that and then we think it might be Anne meredith because we see her trying to murder rhoda but actually it's dr roberts how did you find the kind of the three-layer solution <laughs> well i did have i did have a bit of a so Ariadne Oliver is so funny because right away she's like, Roberts did it, he's Welsh, he's a bad name. They're always, you know, shady, the Welsh. That's it. I know the solution. Then um, after speaking to, I believe it's uh, Major Despa, um, or maybe it is Anne Meredith herself, she switches to Anne Meredith. She did it. I know for a fact she did it. And then, you know, then by the end, she's like, you know, I always said Dodger Roberts did it. And so um, when Lorimer confesses, I almost said, oh, you know, um, I kind of had a similar moment of like, oh, see, I knew it because I was going to rotate her to one at a certain point in my ranking. Um, but then I did and I left it. So I, I sort of had the same thing. But then very quickly, I realized, no, this can't be right because I actually looked at the chapter listing. So that that tableau occurs in like chapter 26 and there was 31 chapters in the book. So I knew fairly right away something was not right with that, that it couldn't just be that. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously that turned out to be the case where she's lying. I, I do love how um, vehement Poirot becomes about, well, you must be lying to me. Tell me the truth now. And, um, you know, he almost becomes like violent about it and is so tormented by her confession not making sense that and the reason being she could not have possibly committed anything but a very premeditated murder. Mm. I thought it was very interesting. And, um, you know, parole is always right. But the sort of the stubbornness there. Um, it's like a uh, Jekyll and Hyde thing with Poirot. He's been very mild, mild, mild version of him throughout the book. And then he just sort of unloads on her out of dissatisfaction for that solution. Yeah. Um, oh. But yeah, I, I did enjoy Lorimer in the end, um, probably as much as Poirot did. Um, really fascinating character. Mm. I think it's a great book. I mean, I, I think that I think it's just so fascinating to see Poirot in a different light interacting with different people than we've seen him come to interact with. So Battle and, and Oliver. I think the suspects are kind of interesting in different ways. And I re I really love the ending. I really love the layered ending. I think I think this is a, just a genuine 
like you can say some of her books are overhyped or correctly judged like murder in mesopotamia is correctly judged to be rubbish but i think this is genuinely undervalued i've said that of some of her earlier 1920s novels that i think have something to say for themselves but i think this is legitimately a really good detective novel and people should really really go read it's it very dynamic you know and the characters are dynamic it's but it's not hard to follow it's no. just even it with all the bridge talk <laughs> to it yeah. that keep you guessing and um like i said i mean i really tried hard to stick with it and pick up on every little clue and i um i got close um where by then i i was very i was very sure it was ann meredith but i also had this res- reservation for dr roberts because mm. it's very much like um hastings uh picking up on the letters in uh abc right why yeah. was that del- letter so there's one line towards the beginning of the book where somebody says well it must have been dr roberts because he would have known where to place the knife yes exactly and that's exactly. really yeah. true to me um especially given the fact that it's silent and so i did always have that chestnut at the back of everything immediate death through the heart silence yeah so i did always i knew something was going on with dr roberts um especially like the way he questions his secretary after battle questions is a little too uh like nonchalant you know Mm. oh like what did he ask you by the way kind of thing so i knew he was hiding something Again, I I truly thought it would come down to all four of them or at least three of them had like had their hand in it. Like they all I kept waiting for the autopsy report to be a factor of. Yeah, but she kept saying she she actually does write a prologue to this book, which she never does a proper introduction. She says, I'm going to play fair with you. It isn't going to be, you know, everyone did it or no one did it. Like this is just going to be there is one person who did it and I'm going to I'm going to play totally fair with you. Um, Have that in the audio book. So. Ah, sucks. Might have helped me had, had I known that. All the bridge schools. Um, I decided for new one, I'm going to get a hard copy and do it that way. No, no, next time there's a map or something, because I know you do the plays and the audios, I'll I'll take a picture and send it to you, so I make sure you see it. So that can that can run that. Go forward. Have you, is Death on the Nile one of the ones you like? Or are you excited like it. Or is it like a medium one for you? I like it. It's probably not like in my top 10 I don't hate it though, you know, it's enjoyable. And the the radio play of that one is probably one of the best of the yeah, radio. Yeah, I've, I've actually got that. I've got it in every format. I've got every film. It's one of my absolute favorites. Not because yeah. it's one of the best detective stories, but I just love the kind of the central, passionate, sort of obsessive love at it and the sort of the setting. So to me, yeah. I love it more as a book than as a detective book. Whereas this, I love more as a detective book. I think it's so good as a murder. Definitely a lot of the the classics, right? It has the danger, the mystery, the romance, the yeah. fantastic Very... of you know um, ancient you know civilization and stuff. So it's it's a very yeah romantic book, I would say. And um, it, for the radio play, the quality of it, it just it enhances it so much with the sound effects and the music and things. I love it. It's one of my favorites. I would definitely say that if you can get hold of the Peter Ustinov movie of it, it's definitely worth watching. And it's got okay. David Prince's race in it. Well, Hastings, I think it's kind of recast. Um, it's it's Peter Ustinov is just so fantastic. 
And the cast is ridiculous. I mean, it's got flipping Mia Farrow in it. It's got, um, it's it's just a ludicrous cast. Betty Davis is in it. I mean, wow. yeah. All right, well, we'll save it for our death on the Nile. But listen, if you've made it this far, thank you for joining us on this journey through Cards on the Table. Tremendous book. It gets us to the end of 1936, one of Christie's most prolific years. And we hope to see you, hear you, talk to you next time. In the meantime, if you want to chat about Agatha Christie or anything else pop culture, come find us on the Discord server. Find us, Google Vassals of Kingsgrave or VOK podcast, and you'll, you'll get to us. Thank you so much.